Hello, Janeites, and welcome to Austin Chat, a podcast coming to you from the Jane Austen Society of North America. I'm your host, Brecken Wood, from the Georgia region of Jasna. My guest today is such an accomplished scholar and Austin expert that it's difficult to even know where to begin with her bio. She's three different kinds of professor at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, in English and Comparative Literature, Asian Studies, and Global Studies. She's the founder and director of the annual Jane Austen Summer Program and co-host of the Jane Austen & Co. web series. As far as her jazz involvement, she's served on the board of directors and as a traveling lecturer and has twice been the Jasna North American Scholar Lecturer at an AGM. In 2024, she has a book coming out from Johns Hopkins University Press called Jane Austen and the Price of Happiness. Clearly, she could expound knowledgeably on pretty much any Austen-related subject, but today we're going to chat about Austen's endings. Are they happy? I always thought so, but Inga has some interesting new angles for us to consider. Welcome to the show, Inga. Thank you so much. It's great to be here, Brecken. I just realized that maybe I didn't say your full name. This is Inga Brody. I just feel like she needs no introduction after oh. that very long bio. <laughs> but yeah, her name is Inga Brody, and we're so happy to have her today. So before we dive in, I'd like to start with our Desert Island segment. You're stranded on a desert island, and you can only have one Austin character as your pen pal. Who do you choose and why? Well, okay, pen pal. So that means there's back and forth, right? Yes. That means they must be able to send me packages. So <laughs> I think I think Elizabeth Bennett might have the combination of humor to cheer me up and the ability to be helpful in practical matters, <laughs> especially if Mr. Darcy pays the postage. That's really funny. So most people have not approached this from a survival perspective, but I appreciate that you're that you're thinking that way as well. Or maybe Mrs. Jennings. She would send you olives, right, Mrs. Jennings? And in Constantia, wine might come in handy. Exactly. No, that's great. That's a good choice. Um, okay, so let's get started. Let's talk about your forthcoming book, Jane Austen and the Price of Happiness. You look at the endings of Austen's novels. So what what prompted you to study that aspect of her work in particular? Well, um, I think she's, I think Austin is very mischievous with her endings, um, but what she excludes, what she includes, the snide commentary, the rushed pace, um, intrusions that remind us that it's just fiction after all. So there are many f interesting recurring techniques that I've always wondered about, but it started when I was a teenager and read Mansfield Park for the first time. My brother had introduced me to Austin I, and I stormed into his room, room. he was in college. And, uh, and I said, what did, what is Austin doing? What happened with Mansfield Park's ending? Did she die or something? Because, <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, you're, you're at a, you had this long time to develop in minute particulars, all these characters. And then a page and a half from the ending, Edmund still sees Fanny as a sister. Yeah. And it was like, it's just crazy. So um, uh, anyway, so I, I looked. I, in, I also then later when I studied Austin, I realized that in criticism, tons of important scholars have attributed this to personal weakness or coldness or ignorance um, rather than a conscious artistic choice. So, mm -hmm. um, so that's what I wanted to explain and explore. That is so interesting. And I would say, I agree with you. Mansfield Park has to be the least romantically satisfying ending. <laughs> that that one line where it's like, and all that was left was for Edmund to learn to prefer blue eyes over brown. I was like, are you kidding me? Like, this is all that Fanny gets after everything she's suffered for the past 400 pages. Yeah, it's like yeah. transferring from a blue waistcoat to a, a dark waistcoat. Right. Like, I mean, she's a dark, just a dark, thing. Other way around. 
<laughs> yeah, like she's just yeah. an object. Like, oh, whatever, eye color. Oh man, I yeah, she made me really mad. Do you think she's doing that on purpose and managing? Oh, absolutely, park? absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's incredibly frustrating. Um, I remember learning in high school that pretty much all that's required for a Shakespeare play to be considered a comedy is that there's a marriage at the end, right? Even if some tragic things happen, like Merchant of Venice. I remember reading that and being like, this is a comedy? This is horrifying. So how do you define a happy ending within the context of literature? And how would you say like Austin's work aligns with or challenges that definition? Well, um, yeah, Shakespeare was definitely part of her inspiration and and a big part of my book too. Um, And where he has problem plays like Merchant of Venice is technically a problem play oh, originally they- originally they called it that because people couldn't decide whether they were comedies or tragedies and they felt a strong need to have either or so mm-hmm. anything that couldn't be put either or was called a problem so she has problem novels um and um and she often portrays happiness under a veil or like a, on a strong foundation of tragedy um and i think i think she gives readers the marriage plots that they expected and expect, but she always draws attention to them. Um, And she, one of the things she does in relation to literature around her is that she expands drastically the the novel, the idea of who can be a heroine. And she, you know, that's most obvious in Northanger Abbey where she's, Mm -hmm. you know, talking about the common and, and contrasting uh, Catherine with, you know, the, the, exotic heroines so yeah, she's very explicitly setting out the tropes and how she's undermining them in Northanger Abbey exactly everything that, that, that she's not but um so but she does this I think in all of her novels to some extent expanding who can be a heroine and um yeah and when when like feminist discourse around like the 19th century novel talk about that whenever there is a central female heroine you know embarking on any kind of quest um, there are two possible outcomes. One is marriage and the other is death. <laughs> Great. You, yeah, right, yeah, yeah. And you look at Samuel Richardson, right? And he's, so he has examples of each. He's got like Pamela could only end in marriage or death. Marriage, he chose for that one. Clarissa, mm-hmm. he chose death. Um, but Austin questions this false dichotomy in her own way. Um, mm-hmm. And she really brings out, she really contrasts romantic fulfillment with other forms of happiness. Um, and uh, so like, And those are other forms of happiness are also traditional to the comedy, like restoration, recognition, reconciliation, Um, lots of R words. Uh, Yeah. So I think that's a that's a short version of of what she does. Well, you've you've mentioned this already. So I want to jump to this question, which is how did Austen's reading influence the way that she handled the endings of her novels? What what was she reading and how is she mimicking that or undermining that with her happy endings or with her air quotes happy endings? Yeah, well, that's complicated. Um, um, and obviously, there's so many different things she was reading. Sure. And that's yeah. one of the really fun things, actually. I've been collecting uh, books that she read for for our Jane Austen's Desk Project. And it's the, the range of them is astounding. Um, so she was really very well read in history and science and all sorts of other things as well as in geography and mm-hmm. as well as literature. But I guess a short answer to what you're saying is that... Um, Austin was one of the things I learned or I think is important about Austin is that she was really self-conscious of her existence as novelist. So like a lot of other women authors at the time, 
they wouldn't just publish novels, they would do poetry or, or um, anthologies, or they do a whole range of things, even within one book. And so, but, but the, the long titles, you know, like including da, 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 all these other things. Yeah. Um, but she, she like her, when she, when she published uh, her first version of Northanger Abbey, it was Susan colon, a novel. You know, period. You know, that's... she's not going to tell you anything. She's so coy sometimes, <laughs> but she's also really, really dedicated to this new kind of fledgling genre of the novel. She was dedicated to it. There was a tradition of the marriage plot, which goes back beyond the novel, of course, to Shakespeare and others. Um, and so she accepts that plot line, mm-hmm. but she draws attention to it. She expands who can do it, and by accepting it. Ra- she she um, is able to focus more on the psychology of the heroines, mm-hmm. um, but at the same time she kind of chafes at it, and shows <laughs> uh, she wants to show that there are many, that with her mix of satire and romance, um, that there are many alternatives to forms of happiness outside romantic happiness, which so depends so much on luck, and that and that mix of um, her mix of satire and romance is also very unusual. So most of the female authors that she was imitating did not have that element of satire. Um, and so she, you can see that in her endings, how she's negotiating those two poles. Mm-hmm. And I want to go back to something else you said that um, the only two options for heroines were marriage or death. Do you think that in Sense and Sensibility, her contemporary readers thought like, oh, Marianne's gone or she's going to die. Do you think that that was like, I don't really think of her recovering as a surprise ending, but would that have been a twist for her readers? Absolutely. I mean, she's, I've written elsewhere about how she's a mod, she's modeled on Goethe's Werther, the, 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 where they called him Werther. Mm-hmm. Um, who was um, who appears in her Juvenilia too, because someone is proving her worth by reading the Sorrows of of Werther because it's so sentimental. So, and so, mm-hmm. um, Marianne in she plants all these little connections to him in there, and he dies by suicide. Right. So I think that in many ways that would be the natural conclusion in in terms of those uh, sen- tropes of sensibility at the mm-hmm. time. So listeners. Inga very sweetly asked me in an email if we should put a spoiler alert at the beginning of this episode because we're talking about so many endings. And I <laughs> thought I was very thoughtful of her, but also felt that the statute of limitations has passed for these 200-year-old novels. So in case you didn't know that young Werther dies by suicide, he dies by suicide, just FYI. Um, and yeah, if you, if you don't want to hear the endings of all the other Austin books maybe pause now go read them come back and finish the episode um i want to talk again about sense and sensibility i have a friend in my jasna georgia group who insists that sense and sensibility does not have a happy ending and when she said that i was shocked and like a little offended i was like of course it does what are you talking about but then she's really given me something to think about and so what what do you think what which would you say is the least happy of austin's endings or do you think any of them are are particularly unsatisfying and that's on purpose? Yeah, I mean, sense sensibility. So happiness in a traditional comedy is more it's also about justice, right? Just like distributive justice and and both sense sensibility and Mansfield Park, well, particularly sense sensibility is very unjust in its ending, right? I mean, Edward who was supposed to be the wealthiest barely has enough to <laughs> marry and he's disinherited for threatening to marry the one that his <laughs> the brother who inherited actually marries right uh, all that so it's it begins and ends with 
tremendous financial injustice. So, um, but in terms of the marriage plot, there are, I think those are the two novels, Insensibility and, Mar and Mansfield Park, where people dispute frequently um, whether Austin put the right protagonists together. Huh. So my first encounter with Jasna, actually, when I gave a, I was, I gave a talk at a, at a debate in Chicago, a very lively debate about did Austin, did Marianne marry the wrong person, or did did Austin Aww. match Marianne to the wrong person? Um, of course, I came to Colonel Brandon's defense. Thank but... you. I have such a soft spot <laughs> for him, and I don't know if it's because he. I think it might be because he's played by Alan Rickman, and I just Aww. love Alan Rickman so much. Yeah. Well, yeah. Rickman hadn't filmed by then, so I didn't right. have that ally. Sure. Um, <laughs> but um, so, well, okay. One thing that's helpful to think about, I think, is that her novels kind of divide up between the heroines who were who were right and the heroines who were wrong, mm -hmm. in a way. Like those, the heroines who are um, um, half of them have to face their biggest barriers are internal, right? With and for those. It's it's easier for Austin to separate the moment of of uh, enlightenment from from the marriage because mm -hmm. um, she sep she cl always separates those two and the moment of enlightenment happens whenever they think they're not going to marry so it's trickier for her with the heroines who are right because they you know you feel so much for them they have all these external things that have happened and they right. you feel like they oh they deserve happiness and all its it's forms like I'm thinking of Eleanor and Fanny and Anne um, and Elliot. Yeah. Yeah. And so what she does is then for each of those, she has a different technique in each of those novels to, um, to show still that romance while wonderful is secondary. Mm -hmm. um, and for example, in sentensibility, it's really the restoration between this, the reconciliation between the sisters and Eleanor's recognition by her mother that are the, that Austin really separates out as that almost happier ending than the, yeah. than the romance. So she does similar things in the others. That's what my, my friend argued was that, well, maybe she was talking about that pride and prejudice and sense and sensibility could be seen as love stories between the sisters. And like that, that's the more important love relationship than the romantic one. And I was like, Oh, that's an interesting way of thinking about it. And so since we've brought up Pride and Prejudice, I, which of Austin's endings stand out to you as particularly happy? Would you say that Pride and Prejudice is the only like fully happy ending? What What are your thoughts? Actually, that's what I when I was starting to write this book, that's what I thought. I was that that it was kind of an exception. Um, but as I looked more um, carefully at what what she does in Pride and Prejudice, I don't think it is an exception. It's partly because she really cares Austin really cares about education she wants to educate her readers and not just entertain she is always uh she's always thinking about um the growth necessary to manage disappointment and uh and in, she doesn't have a name for it initially but by time of persuasion she calls it resources for solitude hmm. um so anyway with pride and prejudice we have that lovely bit of the engagement conversation, lively dialogue. We have three chapters after the engagement, which is unusual. And it stands out for, from the things that she does not do to the ending. I have a complicated argument probably in the book about this, but but <laughs> what I but I would say is that she still, in the ending, really subordinates the romantic to the social. Because mm -hmm. um, she does this thing of, of zooming out and people get annoyed because she zooms out too quickly. Like, oh, we want that close up of the, of exactly. the engagement or the kiss, <laughs> the cinematic uh, 
kiss in the in the in the movie. Anyway, it, for my argument re- revolves partly around um, civility and the and, and how um, uh, Elizabeth remarks to him to Darcy about how well we have both grown in civility, and I think that's such an interesting word to use at that point in the in the novel. And you you said that a lot of her heroines teach themselves or learn to manage disappointment. Isn't Elizabeth who has the line about think only on the past as far as it gives you pleasure or something like that. That is a fun quote. Um, I like the water men to rocks and mountains, but, (laughs) um, but that I think that the Elizabeth actually has some similarity with Marianne oddly in that they're both kind of warnings about hope. Um, and the dangers of hope and disappointment, what they can do to you, because in that moment where uh, where Elizabeth is most distraught and disappointed, and she, where she says the water mendo rocks and mountains, she shows that she could become like her father um, and become cynic, a cynic um, mm-hmm. and despairing in that sense, and, to, and despairing enough to pull away from the world. And that's that's another reason why civility is important, because civility means you are you're considering to engage in the world even in the absence of affection. But Emma actually has the one that is a novel that has the longest post engagement. We have like six or seven chapters post engagement. I'm, I'm glad you brought up Emma because the ending of Emma has always really bothered me, and it makes me really <laughs> uneasy. And I don't know if it's because I am you know, 200 years later. So it's a modern perspective or if it's because I'm American, but the way that Emma just throws those class barriers back up between herself and Harriet after they've been so chummy the whole book. And she's like, oh, everyone was right. Harriet is beneath me. I've always felt really weird about the ending because there is a really romantic, I, I mean, I rode through the rain, right? His whole speech. It's so good. It's so satisfying. Tell us what your thoughts on the ending of Emma. I think that Emma is flawed. You know, yeah. she's she's not perfect, but that's that is part of what Austin was doing. It's like so. In, in as you see the transition from one novel to the next, you she's always taking on a challenge that relates to the previous novel. So she, you know, Pride and Prejudice, she says in her letters, was too light and bright and sparkling. She doesn't really mean that as criticism. Criticism of, in fact, it's in the context of somebody not reading it well enough because mm-hmm. to get the lightness and brightness out. But but she then says, but then she decides. Basically, it's too charming, and she's constant. She, in the same way that she is in, involved with teaching readers to avoid self-indulgent involvement in an ending, in a romantic ending, like she doesn't want us to get all teary-eyed. I mean, she doesn't want us to be self-indulgent about the romantic endings, mm-hmm. which is so ironic for con- considering what she's doing in contemporary society. Right. <laughs> um, but so, in, in the same way, she then dis- she's that she's disciplined that way about her own artistry. So she could have written six more Pride and Prejudices, I think, but instead she decides to take on a novel that really is explicitly against charm, about charm in Mansfield Park. And then going from the most powerless heroine to the most powerful, can a a really powerful heroine full of her own self Mm -hmm. and her power be a a heroine too, you know? So she, she takes on these, all these imperfect people um, and, and difficult situations to, um, to expand her heroism into. That is really interesting. I've never heard anyone say that, that she's setting herself a new challenge with, with each book. That's, that's new knowledge to me. <laughs> yeah, no, I think it's, that's the way I make sense. It's really fun to, to teach her in that way. But she, um, what did you ask me? I was asking you about the ending of Emma and 
there's several chapters right. after the romantic climax. I think the those chapters, what they do is they establish, it's a pretty radical in a way. I think the partnership between Mr. Knightley and Emma becomes quite an actual partnership of, of uh, near equals in some ways toward the end. Because, um, and she models that by their reading this, reading Frank's letter together. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's this kind of joint reading that happens very leisurely where they stop and comment and and reflect that I think is supposed to be a model for their marriage and which is maybe important because there was such a uh, mentor, mentee aspect before that I think she needs that time to actually set them into a partnership. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so back in episode one, when I was talking to Lizzie Dunford, she talks about how Emma, even though it's so much about this powerful heroine and it's even just called Emma, it's really a novel of a village and of neighbors and of of how to be a good neighbor. And so I think those ending chapters are also important because Emma isn't the only one who matters in this novel. Like Harriet matters and the Bateses matter and Jane Fairfax and, you know, every, everybody gets their story told. Yeah, I guess I, I see it a little differently. I think it's... I think it's um a novel about being an artist, about being a novelist. Um, And that Austin throws through Emma the temptations of being an artist and creating your own worlds. Mm -hmm. Um, And that, um, and that when she brings Mrs. Elton in, you know, telling secondhand story of the wedding and so forth, when she does that, she is, she's doing her zooming out from the romance um, and, and puncturing it for those people who are maybe indulging too much in the, in the sense of romance. Uh huh. Well, so let's talk about the adaptations versus the novels. We've mentioned them a little bit. There's certainly a lot of people who only know Austin from the movies. And I think that group would reasonably assume that all of Austin's endings are happy. The girl gets the rich guy, they kiss, we fade to black. Uh, But her endings often extend quite a few chapters beyond the confessions of love. And so why do you think that Austin keeps going after the romantic climax? And why do you think none of the adaptations ever bothered to really do that? Yeah. Well, I don't, I, I think that what the, but actually what the, um, what the adaptations tend not to do is to include the zooming out to other social or broader issues. And, the, and inc- they don't tend to include the ironic puncturing of the romantic happy ending. Cause I think, Austin, she certainly believes in love and its power and um, the dream of marriage to a you know true companion uh, who with mutual respect, et cetera. But she thinks it's extremely rare. So part of her didactic message overall is to is to always subordinate the romantic to the social, and that's what that's what almost really never happens in the in the adaptations. But there you know there are some that do do a do interest. I, I, my, in my book, I have examples of both how adaptations can miss the mark, but also how a lot of adaptations manage to capture aspects of her endings in creative ways. Can you give us an example of one of those? Is there any modern adaptation that you think does a good job of capturing the essence of Austin's endings? I, I don't have like one that I think does everything, but mm-hmm. I think actually, you know, in as as in many ways, Clueless does a, does a really good job. Great movie. Yeah, and the way that it tempts us to think it's it's shares uh, wedding, and then it isn't, um, uh-huh. I think really calls out how modern viewers want the marriage plot. 
And, and you know, what, what, one of the things that surprised me most writing this book was how little readers have changed since Austin's time. Like we still need the lessons that she's teaching, even though all these movements have, you know, occurred in the, in the meantime, it's very strange and interesting to me. And then, and then aspects of, of, even though I have mixed feelings about it as an adaptation of Mansfield Park by Rosima, that one, some of the camera work really cleverly captures aspects of her endings. Um, mm -hmm. I'm thinking of, um, there's a, the BBC adaptation of Northanger Abbey. It was like mid 2000s. I want to say like 2008 or 2009. Um, I really like it. And the the ending actually reads the last line of the book and it's while general tilney is like angrily swishing his cane in the grass or something and it says um i leave it to be settled by whomsoever it may concern whether the tendency of this work be altogether to recommend parental tyranny or reward filial disobedience like i just huh. it's such a good line of the of the book and you yeah. see the happy couple and then you see general tilney just like angry and you know in the weeds and 2007 felicity jones that's the one that i'm thinking of felicity jones oh right it has the wonderful henry tilney yes yeah He's... yeah i like that one that one's that one's i think the best of the northanger abbeys i agree i just don't mm -hmm. remember that that part of the ending that you just mentioned that's but... just like the last scene you yeah. see them coming out of the church and then you hear the the narrator because be, because that book has such a strong narrator presence. There is an actual narrator, yeah. kind of like in the Gwyneth Paltrow Emma, and yeah. so that you hear the narrator's voice coming on, and everybody's celebrating in you know the wedding, and then General Tilney's not there, and they read the last line of the book, and it's it's rare for an adaptation to just like so explicitly read from the book. Yeah, and I like I'll have to that. watch that one again. I have to watch that. It's always always worth rewatching. Absolutely. Um, <clears throat> okay. So what, what's the key takeaway that you'd like listeners to have regarding the endings of Jane Austen's novels? That's a big question. Like condense your entire book down into <laughs> one little gem for us, Inga. Um, well, I would just say that there's much more to Austen than, than how to marry. Um, and uh, for those who don't want to find a romantic happy ending or can't, you know, there are many other kinds of happiness within reach. And she, uh, she's pretty wise on that subject. Yeah. And that she'll probably undermine your expectations. Cause that's one of her favorite things to do. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> well, this has been so much fun. Thank you for talking with me today. Um, where can our listeners go to learn more about you and your books and your other work? Oh, they could go to, um, ingabrody.com, my, my regular website. Um, and uh, janeaustinandco.org, janeaustinsummer.org, jazzplus.org, the various uh, Austin programs I run. Yeah. Um, and the price of happiness should be, um, you should be able to pre-order it in about November, I think, of 2023. Okay. Thank you so much. <laughs> it was a pleasure. Okay, everyone, it's time for another nugget of Jasna news. Are you familiar with our International Visitor Program, also known as IVP? Well, it's awesome. Each year, Jasna offers a fellowship grant to a member who is working on a creative or scholarly project that requires them to do research in Jane Austen's village of Chawton, England. The IVP committee selects the International Visitor based on applications received each year by December 16th. 
For those of you who may be working on an Austin-related project or have one in mind, we've invited the chair of JASNA's International Visitor Program, Carol Chernega, to tell us more about the program and how to apply to be considered for the 2024 fellowship. Thanks for joining us today, Carol. I'm excited to be here to discuss this great opportunity for JASNA members. So I was the first international visitor in 2005, and I used my time in Chawton to research a book I was writing on the writer's homes in England that are open to the public. And this met one of the first criteria of the application. You must need to be in England to work on your project. In other words, if you can do your research online at home, then it's less likely you're going to be chosen to be the international visitor. The second criteria of this grant is that you have useful skills to offer our Chawton partners since you're required to work with either St. Nicholas Church, Jane Austen's house, or Chawton House at least two days a week. So for me, this meant that I worked at Chawton House one day a week, transcribing the minutes of the early meetings of the Jane Austen Society of Great Britain, which was really very interesting to see how they got organized back in the 1940s. Another day each week, I worked with a gardener at Jane Austen's house, since I'm a professional gardener at home. This gave me a wonderful opportunity to not only help the head gardener there, but also learn about what the garden was like during Jane Austen's time. I, all, I later developed a, a lecture based on that experience, which I presented at the Williamsburg AGM. Now, other international visitors since then have worked either on their PhD dissertation or they've written books. And we had one visitor who set Jane's prayers to music. And then she performed that music at St. Paul's Church in Covent Garden in London. So as you can see, there's a lot of different opportunities and a lot of different options for projects that an international visitor could work on. You don't have to be a student or an academic to apply. So, but two additional requirements are, applicants must be a JASNA member who resides in the US or Canada, and they must be able to live in England for four to six weeks during July and August, which includes the date of the British AGM in Winchester. So I'd encourage everyone to visit the JASNA website for more information, click on the programs button, and then on the international visitor button and read all about the projects of our past visitors. And also pay especially uh, a lot of attention to the Austin related institution section. The application on the website is open for you to start perusing and submit it anytime now between now and December 16th. Now it's time for In Her Own Words, a segment where listeners share a favorite Austin quote or two. My name is Jennifer Weinbrecht and I'm from the Ohio North Coast region. It's hard to say this quote from Sense and Sensibility is my favorite because I have so many favorite lines in Jane Austen. Marianne is recovering from her broken heart and her illness, and Eleanor and Marianne are walking together discussing Willoughby. Eleanor, do you compare your conduct with his? Marianne, no, I compare it with what it ought to have been. I compare it with yours. The first time I read Sense and Sensibility, I teared up at this point. Eleanor has been my focus throughout the novel, and I was very much in her head. At this moment, 
I felt that Marianne went through that moment of self-knowledge very seriously. And when Austin's characters do that, they deal with those moments with dignity and strength and courage and sometimes humor. At that point, I felt that Eleanor and Marianne become equals. And the true story of this novel is the love between these sisters. Their sisterly relationship is really the love story in Sense and Sensibility.